Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 11. My name is Christopher Luff. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, SANS DEFER instructor Matt Bromley will be taking us through a tactic, technique, and or procedure used by the baddies in his segment called the Adversary Toolbox. After that, we're going to be speaking with Zach Allen, Director of Security Detection and Research at Datadog. It is a great conversation with a lot of valuable information. Before we get going, I want to take a moment and thank everybody that took part in the Cybersecurity Cares holiday fundraising effort this year. In just over two weeks, members of the cybersecurity community came together and raised over $25,000 in support of Action Against Hunger, who are working to bring food security to the places where it is needed most. There are far too many people to thank individually in this format, but if you made a donation or helped raise awareness by telling people about us or sharing on social media, thank you. 25000 US is a non-trivial amount of money that is going to have a real impact on the lives of people that really need help, and you should feel proud. We're going to see if we can take things farther next year, and we want you to get involved. You can learn more about the initiative and register to get notified when we spin things back up next year at cybersecurity-cares.com. That's cybersecurity-cares.com. Hey everyone, it's Matt here from Lima Charlie, and welcome to the Adversary Toolbox. In this segment, we always spend a few minutes chatting about a particular adversary tool or tactic. And our goal, as always, is to bring light to the different TTPs that adversaries use, so that as defenders, we can be on the lookout and be aware of how tools can be used or abused within our environments. In this episode, I want to continue our examination of lateral movement tools. Now, in the previous two episodes, we looked at PS exec and PA exec, respectively, which are non-native tools that get introduced into the environment by an adversary. Admittedly, PS exec is published by Microsoft, but it is not a native tool. It does not ship with the Windows operating system. In this episode, we're going to look at two seemingly different capabilities that are native to the Windows operating system. Windows Remote Management, or WinRM, and PowerShell Remoting. Now, for some, these may feel like different approaches or different mechanisms. However, PowerShell Remoting actually utilizes WinRM as its communication mechanism, which allows for PowerShell commands to be executed on remote computers. As such, you'll often see these capabilities intertwined and referred to interchangeably amongst threat intelligence reports, and sometimes amongst adversary action descriptions as well. WinRM and PowerShell remoting capabilities are really a system admin's dream. Being able to quickly manage and maintain any number of systems using built-in capabilities allows for easy enterprise management. Furthermore, these capabilities can be baked in to PowerShell scripts, VB scripts, really allowing for a lot of extensibility and a wide range of options. As such, many third-party and remote management tools may also utilize these underlying services to facilitate their communication. However, as we know and as we've seen before, Anything that system administrators love, especially for remote command execution and system management, will probably become an adversary favorite as well. Now, from a communication perspective, WinRM utilizes HTTP or HTTPS via Simple Object Access Protocol, or SOAP, on ports 5985 and 5986, respectively. Now, by default, there are some great protections in place. Connections are only allowed for members of the administrators group, and subsequent sessions are launched under user's context. Furthermore, Microsoft documentation shows us that there is process isolation in place. WinRM runs as a service under the network service account, 
and spawns isolated sessions under the user accounts to host the PowerShell instances. This process execution tree can actually be very useful for detection engineers looking to identify this activity. From an authentication perspective, WinRM supports Kerberos, NTLM, and basic authentication, which unfortunately can open up some additional account compromise and lateral movement risk. Now, there are a few blockers that make WinRM or PowerShell remoting the default tool for some adversaries. First, it does require the correct privileges to connect between systems. Now, I know sometimes it feels like adversaries can just grab accounts whenever they want. However, protected administrator accounts can lessen the risk of this service's misuse. Second, the default Windows firewall settings for PowerShell remoting differ between private and public networks, but a heavily segmented or a well-segmented network with tight user access controls can really cut down on abuse of this service. And finally, uh, WinRM must actually be enabled for it to work. Now, this is done by default on Windows Server 2012 and above. However, it is not always done on user systems. It can be done with an easy commandlet and a forced PowerShell run, but that requires the correct permissions. Despite some of these blockers, we still do see adversaries utilize these remote capabilities. We've seen multiple threat groups ranging from APT to financially motivated groups utilize WinRM and or PowerShell remoting as their lateral movement choice. If available, it's a really easy way to stay under the wire with a legitimate account that may not trip detections looking at file signatures or the use of non-standard protocols. Furthermore, we've also seen, or I should say we do see, WinRM and PowerShell remoting capabilities baked into post-exploitation kits, such as Cobalt Strike and Brute Retell. Now, Lima Charlie, we're always going to encourage you to utilize multiple sources of telemetry to identify suspicious WinRM or PowerShell activity. First, just ask and see if this activity is even used in your environment or in your customers' environments. Your administrators might not even choose to use it. That's a great baseline and an easy, this thing should not exist. However, in instances where it is utilized legitimately, I would take a look at combining process execution events with Windows event logs, especially your PowerShell event logs, which can be a powerful combination to quickly determine if you're seeing legitimate or suspicious activity. All right, that's it for this installment of the Adversary Toolbox. Join me next time where we'll continue our exploration of adversarial tactics and techniques and the things we can do to better prepare our detections for them. I'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Lima Charlie, makers of cybersecurity tools and supporting infrastructure delivered as a service. The approach is very similar to the way Amazon Web Services delivers components of IT infrastructure, but the technologies are focused around cybersecurity and automating operations. Things like EDR, Windows Event Log Monitoring, Multi-Source Telemetry Ingestion, Data Routing at the Event Level, File Integrity Monitoring, Memory Dumps at Scale, Yara Scanning, Curated Detection Rules, Integrations with Velociraptor, Atomic Red Team, and many others. The list just goes on and on and is growing all the time. Everything is available on demand and designed API first using infrastructure as code. It is a DevOps friendly approach to cybersecurity that is long overdue. If you are curious and want to check it out, you can sign up for the full featured free tier without ever talking to a salesperson at limacharlie.io. Next up, my chat with Zach Allen, Director of Security Detection and Research at Datadog. Thanks for being here with us today, Zach. Uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. So yeah, um, my name is Zach Allen. I'm the Director of Security Detection and Research at Datadog. So uh, what I do is I help lead an organization full of really smart security people 
um, and we help build security into data products. And we use those features to kind of go and find the bad guys inside customer environments. And so um, that involves uh, a whole team of detection engineers, uh, as well as a team of security researchers. And I've been there for about a year now. Oh, very cool. What do, what does a typical day look like for you? Huh. Uh, let's see. So a typical day for me, I'm up at 630 with my toddler. <laughs> and, um, you know, how old, your, how old your kid? Uh, 18. She's approaching 18 months old. So oh, very cool. Half. Very yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I have this really cool setup where I, I walk her to daycare. So it's almost like my commute to work because I work from home. Um, but Datadog's a big company and it's global. So I already have a lot of messages and documents being shared with me from our um, colleagues, you know, in Europe and things like that. But really it just comes down to making sure the team has everything they need in, ter- in terms of executing the strategy that we set um, and jumping in the calls and making sure that, you know, we're staying on course, right? Every once in a while, I'll be able to work on a feature, maybe squash a bug, write a couple of rules, things like that, um, just to kind of keep sharp. But uh, right now, it's really just making sure the ship is kind of going in the direction we want it to go. Okay, so you're running a fairly large team of people. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, I'm always curious about how people found their way into cybersecurity. Um, you know, you must have found technology first and then cybersecurity. What did, what did that path look like? Oh, yeah, uh, I, I love this question because um, I ask it too because I, <laughs> I, I, I realize and I think um, what, where you'll get at is that everyone's very unique when it comes to security. Um, I, for me, it started when I was like four or five years old. Um, my dad had a computer and I wanted to just get on it, play around with it, things like that. And then I think it was AOL 3.0 when I was eight or nine years old and getting on there, checking out chat rooms and then realizing like, Hey, this is kind of cool. Um, but some people are coming in and like crashing the chat room. Or, or sending weird messages to me and then all of a sudden my AOL crashes. Like, what is that? So then that's kind of like where the rabbit hole began. Um, and that moved to video games. I, you know, loved video games. We, I remember the cheat books you would used to get for your console and all the different combinations you would put in for your controller. And then online, I saw people were cheating and I was like, I want to cheat at this. This is really cool. Uh, so started... Um, Downloading and writing cheats for Counter-Strike, uh, Diablo, um, worked my way all the way into school uh, in college. And I was lucky enough where my alma mater, the Rochester Institute of Technology, had a degree in cybersecurity. So this was like 2008 and just kind of took off from there. I was like, oh, I can do some bad things, but ethically and I get paid for it. This seems like a good deal. <laughs> all right on. Um, in an article you published titled Absolute Measurement Corrupts Alerts Severity Absolutely, you talked about the responsibility of determining the severity of a rule. So when a detection triggers, what do we do? Do we get someone mm-hmm. out of bed? If we, if we don't get them out of bed, does a company get ransomware? Uh, how do you manage that uncertainty? Yeah, this is a, this is a tough question to answer. And um, you know, I, had, I had a few hot takes in there, but it really kind of boils down to what I was trying to get at with, with my article is that we sometimes overcomplicate things in security. Um, and I know this because I have worked mostly at companies that um, built products, but they weren't necessarily security products. So I worked at Fastly, which is a massive content delivery network. I work at Datadoc now, which is huge in infrastructure. 
And the dev teams and the ops teams that are on call, they get paged, they have severity. They just seem to have everything figured out. Whereas I'm looking all across different types of models, whether it's expert models, machine learning models, huge papers with all these equations about how to tell if an alert is an info or a low or a high or critical. So basically what my take was is that maybe we can kind of look at this the way dev and ops teams do. Very much like someone gets paged at night if something is going terribly, terribly wrong and the business is at stake, it's probably okay to do that for security too. Now, what I mean by that is that when we're kind of looking at the difference between two things, humans are really, really good at that. And um, the research, and there's some research that, that backs that up. And this is kind of the, the, the impetus or, or the attraction to the Scrum methodology when it comes to like pointing stories and other things dev teams do. Um, it is much easier to look at something and compare it to a similar work item than it is to look at something atomically and say, this is what it is. Humans just kind of suck at it, actually. Um, so we build these models to try to understand it mathematically. But at the end of the day, you can waste a lot of time doing that. And taking something really complicated and explaining that to like your CISO or to somebody else on your team, it, it just might not be worth the time to go through that when you can kind of go through that relative measurement instead. Right. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of... Um... I think they were called reductions when we talked about NP equals P in computer science back in university. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you yeah. did that course, yeah. but uh, yeah, oh, yeah, it's the same kind of idea. <laughs> Does this thing look like this problem we already understand versus uh, something that we, we have no reference for? Exactly. Exactly. And I'm not saying like, you know, th this is just another model, right? All models yeah. are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah. So when you're looking at something like this, I, I imagine most of the time, and this is in my experience too, I can get away with the relative kind of comparison. And then for those really freak or really outlier situations, of course, you can do something a little bit more complicated. But right. um, detection engineering for me is like using a lot of these principles from so um, dev teams and software teams and just kind of throwing away some of those things from security that I think we kind of built up over time because we knew how smart we were. But maybe we just kind of weren't looking at how we can kind of use other teams as a cheat code. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Uh, which this is interesting that you bring up the uh, modeling off of dev teams and software engineering, because uh, one thing we talk about a lot is uh, detectors as code. And mm -hmm. I was wondering how you guys manage your change control process. Yeah, uh, really good question. So um, we model it after the software development lifecycle. <laughs> so uh, we have something called the detection engineering lifecycle at Datadog. Um, we're we're going to write about it soon. Um, and we, we've, we've talked about it publicly before. But the basic premise is that all detection should go through the lifecycle of software, just like as software does. And so as we're going through and reaching each phase, um, we just kind of go through that, that swim lane, right? Yeah. And... Uh, we go through pointing, we go through, um, you know, those are similar to like a pull, pull request process. If you're making a exactly. code commit, a colleague will come look at it, talk it through with you. And then once everybody's yep. in agreement, um, do you guys use any kind of, uh, CI CD regression testing and unit tests and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. So it depends on the product. Um, I'll choose one product, for example, our, our, um, cloud security posture management product, we use Rego. Um, and, uh, you know, we have extensive testing with that, everything from 
you know, atomic unit tests to integration tests with different fixtures from API calls from all the different clouds. And then you can actually see it live uh, with an end-to-end -end test on, on production. We also have a few open source tools at Datadog. Um, one of them is actually directly solving this problem called threat test. Okay. Um, and threat test, what it does is it's detections is, uh, it's like a taxes code. And then those attacks code are searching for similars and waiting for an attack to generate an alert with a specific ID. So for example, you want to write a detection when someone curls the metadata service on AWS, which might be indicative of an SSRF attack. We have a YAML format as well as Go code that you can write. It'll issue that attack, hook into your SIM, and wait until that specific alert comes out the other end. So it's like a cool end-to-end -end test of Very detections. Cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I'm going to have to go check it out. I've never heard of that particular open source project. Um, yeah. One of the uh, so. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, um, go ahead. Uh, we um, we have a few others. Um, you know, I, I think that is, is really important for like the end to end testing. Um, and then we also have something called Stratus Red Team, which is like a, a threat emulation framework, but just for the cloud. So we took it like something like Atomic Red Team. Mm -hmm. for, which is you know good for endpoints and they're like what if we just did this across the cloud environments and so we're really big on using this engineering software engineering mindset uh to really put a lot of pressure on our detections to make sure that when they hit prod and when we're doing this on behalf of customers we're really confident in them very cool uh, one of the quotes I picked up when researching you for this interview was uh, security as a ship not a fortress I yeah. think I have a good idea of what you mean, and I love it. So I, I'd like to hear you explain that for us. Yeah, yeah. So back back in my days at Fastly, um, I, I loved working at a company that literally manages the internet and kind of seeing all the craziness uh, and challenging all the assumptions I had of the internet. Being those assumptions at the time were like, oh, everything just kind of works. It was really well designed. Uh, you know, when I got there, I realized that basically the internet was built. And with, um, you know, gum, some Band-Aids, like a Rube Goldberg <laughs> machine, right? Yeah. Like, it's, it's insane the type of things that you can see when you work at a CDN. And there was an engineer there. Um, his name is Joao Tavera. And he, uh, he was a network engineer, software engineer. And he talked about how basically businesses operating in the Internet are just a ship in an ocean. And you're not really looking at... And, and the way you optimize around that is really depends on what the ocean's doing. Is a storm going on? Is it calm? Are you going deep waters, shallow waters? And it's constantly changing depending on the direction you're going. That quote, I was thinking about this literally while I was walking my dog. I've always described security as a fortress. And I think that's kind of like an old way of thinking, um, which it helps in many ways. But I think it kind of comes from the government, right? I used to work for the DOD. And... It's just not the case for a business. So if we can make that mental switch from a stagnant fortress that's impenetrable to literally a ship where we have to deal with storms, uh, sharks, pumping um, out the bills. shallow waters. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Some water's coming in. Like that's a little bit different than kind of thinking about some medieval fortress, I guess, that's being attacked by an oncoming enemy. This is never right? going like, to move or change and, and just be fortified. Yeah. Exactly. And, and then it, it puts you in the same spot as your colleagues, whether it's marketing or sales, IT, ops, SRE, like they're all thinking the same way. And sometimes security just thinks we're this stagnant thing that can't be attacked when really we're just 
going with the motion, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned time at the DOD. Uh, can you talk about that at all? What were you doing for them? Yeah, so um, I worked um, at the Air Force Research Laboratory uh, doing research for the Air Force in a laboratory. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I, I primarily worked in some cryptographic engineering functions that basically looked at ways that we can use the internet if SIPRNet, NIPRNet, classified networks go down. So how can we still take classified orders or classified cables and use the internet as it's designed to kind of get people information that they need with, while ensuring an adversary can't see it? All right. Now, that's interesting. I've, I've talked to so many different people who got their start in the Air Force that, yeah, uh, yeah it's really cool. It seems to be a good pipeline into cybersecurity. It is. It is. I think they're doing it best. And I would I, I wonder if my military friends and other branches would say otherwise. They, they would probably agree in some yeah. ways. Um, but a lot of a lot of them, even former Air Force uh, people, they're now kind of making that switch over. We have a couple of veterans on our team that made the switch over. So everyone I've worked with in the Air Force so far um, and all the other branches, too, have been pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, really good at training. That's that's what I've heard all military yeah. branches because they only have people for four years, you know, yeah. minimum. Uh, and they have to get them from wherever they're coming from to being useful in the shortest amount of time. So exactly, exactly. Yep. <laughs> um, in one of the articles you published, you make a distinction between detections and vulnerabilities. So more coverage is not equal to being more secure. Can you talk mm-hmm. about this a little? Why do organizations conflate numbers of detections with being secure when too many can actually cause you to be less secure? Yeah, so um, that basically it's uh, I always try to throw a little bit of history in, in my writing. And I think sometimes I do too much of it and I don't get to my point fast enough. But um, back when I started building the you know threat detection capability at my last company, Zero Fox, um, I've noticed that a lot of the people and the leaders in that company came from McAfee or came from Foundstone. And so these companies were famous for vulnerability scanners, right? And the measure of success for vulnerability scanners is find vulnerability, write a signature for it, write a scanner for it, get it out, and then brag that your competitors don't have it. So more was better when it came to vulnerabilities in that aspect. As you move over to the threat detection space, that same mantra, we can kind of fall victim to it sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I was listening to another threat detection based podcast and they were talking about overlaying heat maps over MITRE attack and kind of seeing like, you know, how much are you spending on this one technique or sub technique versus everything else? Right. And so there's no real good answer here in terms of like what coverage means. To me, it just means take a business objective, translate that into what you think the coverage should be. Prioritize it based on the likelihood of risk and then go and attack that specifically. But I have fallen victim many times to say, like, let's just get all of minor attack covered. Then we mm-hmm. say all of minor attacks covered. Or let's just say probably never face this thing. That's just not within our ecosystem. So as long as you can apply some thought and strategy to that um, and some prioritization and a little bit of intuition, right. you're, you're a little bit better off than saying, like, only write as much as you can. And there's a real world cost with the detection firing, too. Like if you have analysts yep. looking at those things and you don't want them, you know, being fatigued and, and just exactly. starting to glaze uh, over because they're looking like, at so many, how many times false detections all day. You want those things to matter when they come. That's that's the thing I worry about. Right. Like as a leader, um, yeah. burnout, employee engagement, making sure they feel challenged, 
making sure that they can kind of set the path like some part of the time too. Um, the more you impose, like you said, that cost and they start approaching burnout, especially with more remote work. And we're still kind of post pandemic right now. Um, it's just super, super dangerous because you start losing good people and now you're even less secure, right? Yeah. Um, as a cybersecurity practitioner, looking out at the vendor marketing noise, uh, what are your thoughts? What are, what are yeah, the people who are selling uh, cybersecurity tools? This is a funny one because I'm also doing a dirty vendor, right? right? What is it that they're doing? <laughs> and I love, I, I love working at product companies. I, uh, there's, there's something about it where I, I really right. enjoy the business right. aspect <laughs> yeah. of it. And um, I've been part of marketing strategies that are a little grimy. And I'm, we're working through marketing strategies now where we're like, can we put a post out while doing good? but also make sure it can drive, you know, the business objectives that we want to drive. So I think that, um, and reinvent's going on right, uh, on right now too. I've always um, really liked when companies have a good way of decoupling thought leadership with marketing, but decoupling it in a way such that it's balanced. Um, so I love reading reports from like Red Canary. I love reading reports from, you know, folks from, from your organization, Lima Charlie. Um, you know, and I have a short list of companies that have just that good balance that I see where, of course, if I go on, you know, my website or some other product website, I'm going to get like a pop up. That's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about is reading through something, trying to analyze it. And then you're, you're constantly being reminded that where you are, what, you know, what product is going to solve this problem in their portfolio that I think kind of lowers it. So like when I go in and I buy products. Yeah, this yeah. is one of the things I look for. I look yeah. for thought yeah. leadership. I look for marketing and I make sure that there is that balance because I know that they have like a healthy marketing team that's not trying to sell you a story. They're trying to sell you a product. Yeah, they're pro providing value. I think that's sort of one of the guiding principles that we use and that I see in other companies that I, I respect what they're doing with their marketing is, yeah, like we're not trying to trick anybody or trap anybody let's let's put value out there and if people find that value they'll they'll come to us because we're a good fit yeah that that's exactly right um i'm getting my mba right now and uh you know i've been thinking about writing this post about security people should go consider getting an mba and i say that because i think sometimes and i'm very critical of the security community because i've been part of this right i've been part of this and i've been i've kind of done some of the toxic things without knowing it at times we really like to make fun of salespeople, marketing people, mm -hmm. customer success people. But at the end of the day, those are humans. And those humans are actually helping put food on the table for my family. Totally. And so what an MBA will do, and you know, just business in general, is it'll help you talk that language. It'll help you find that balance that I talked about earlier. If you kind of just take this purist approach almost always, you know, of course you could do this on a blog, a personal blog, or things like that, but it doesn't really help the industry and it doesn't really help our cause as a security community of nice we're nice people to work with right mm -hmm, <laughs> so mm -hmm. we, we want we want to be as nice as everybody else and i think from time to time we see some jerks kind of get the spotlight right yeah yeah and i think that's definitely a change that i've seen even over yes. my career uh has gone from sort of you know gatekeeping wizards in the tower to like a very yeah. inclusive and you know a welcoming community that's trying to bring everybody on board because it's really about the mission it's it's not about that, individual that's exactly right there, there's still some stuff left over I, I see from time to time um 
you know, the everything from like going to DEFCON and your Bluetooth or AirPlay accidentally turns on and you're getting dro- airdropped a ton of stuff. There's trolling like that, which is fine. But, you know, it's <laughs> it's nice to see this industry and this community opening up. And I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Um, and I, back to your question earlier, there's so many different ways to get into security. I, I don't I don't really think gatekeeping it to like a degree yeah. actually matters. I've worked with college dropouts that are executives and I've worked with PhDs that are software engineers level one, right? Like it's, it really comes down to the person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you're the president and founder of Security Practices and Research Scholars Association. Can you tell us about what this organization is? Yeah, that's a big one. I, I get... <laughs> Sparsa, there we go. Okay. <laughs> it's a mar- mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sparsa. So we like to say Sparsa. Yes. So uh, Sparsa um, is a club from my alumni and um, Rochester Institute of Technology. The year after 9-11, a group of people got together at RIT and said we should probably have a group dedicated to helping out, you know, um, the cybersecurity mission of the U.S. And so that's where Sparsa was born. And when I came to that school in 2008, it was a large club. We had meetings every Friday, at least 100 people. Now it's getting ridiculous there. They renamed the club to combine a few things, but there's hundreds of students in it now. But what we did was we wanted to have an outlet for us to take our research, kind of present it to our colleagues and not be bound by even academia. And what we found out is that the community Mm -hmm. that forms when you have a space to do that, a safe space to do that is really, really, (laughs) really good. It's conducive to learning, right? And the other part of it is that we actually kind of get some shit done. <laughs> we, we get some research done. We, we, we build tools, we find problems and solutions and things like that. And so when that club rebranded a few years ago, um, right around the end of 2019, I sat down with a few alumni members and I said, we can just turn this into a nonprofit and we can still continue this mission, but maybe we can focus on getting that same ethos of like having a safe space for people to kind of pitch their projects and and maybe they can get funding or scholarships. And so that's what we did. Um, And our goal was to go to our, the two conference meetups for RIT are usually (laughs) ShmooCon in DC and DEFCON. Um, And of course that was late 2019. So we actually never managed to kind of have that official meetup until a year and a half later. Um, But we just had our uh, first meetup last ShmooCon and there was over 200 people there. And so we got everybody together, people were presenting, people were catching up, people were handing out business cards, people were looking for internships and full-time jobs. And so our goal is to create these environments where people can network within our alumni, but then we're going to start looking at ways we can get this out to other schools because we don't, we think that oh, our that's school great. shouldn't be that's the great. And we're going to be at ShmooCon this year, actually, we are sponsoring. So yeah, I'll come find you. I'd love to come. Yeah, for sure. Oh, cool. All right. Well, I'll see you there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is the last one I got, and it's the one I asked for everybody's on the show, and it can be as wide or as narrow as you want. Mostly mm. it's related to cybersecurity, but uh, it, it cool. can be bigger than that. Uh, do you yeah. have any predictions for the future? <sighs> well, I'm going to put my MBA hat on here um, and combine this with security. Uh, we're already kind of seeing a consolidation of many different tech companies. We're seeing a contraction as well from you know, high growth companies and things like that. So a lot of niche players that you see, whether it's in the cloud space, threat intelligence, SIM, 
I think there's going to be a consolidation, like a, a big run up next year for companies getting acquired. Um, I know at least IPOs have slowed down a lot, but within the next year, it's going to be really interesting to see where, you know, these shops that are venture backed, um, see, see where they go. So I, I think it was Warren Buffett. He said, when the tide goes out, it's really easy to see who's been swimming naked. So, um, being able to kind of see which, which of these vendors that are in these growth stages, haven't been swimming naked, came prepared and seeing where others see an opportunity for an acquisition, they take it. Um, so I, I, I'll probably, I'd love to see where that goes, but the consolidation I'm always interested in because after a contraction, what happens is it then goes back into a growth phase and then we get new exciting industries and things like that. Um, so that's probably my prediction, at least for the next year. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, awesome. Zach, I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you at ShmooCon. Uh, thanks yeah, for being a guest. We'll have to grab a beer, grab a drink. You know, I, I uh, have you ever been to ShmooCon before? Uh, no, this is my first one. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. I've been to ShmooCon for the last 10 years. Uh, oh, wow. It's great. <laughs> it, um, I, I will absolutely fanboy for ShmooCon. Um, small conference on purpose, about 1,500 to 2,000 people. Um, really tight knit community there. Um, yeah, we, we had to apply great. to sponsor, which I've never yes. I've never encountered yeah. before. So and uh, they cap it. Yep. Yeah. yeah they yeah. they cap it. So yeah, I'll have to stop by, say hello, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll grab a drink. Oh, that's great. Okay. Thanks, man. Cool. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this, the eleventh episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. We're super grateful and appreciate you listening in and engaging with us. If you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you're listening from. And again, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.